In our Bibles, um, we're going to be in Zephaniah chapter 3, but before we get to Zephaniah chapter 3, we're going to read um, some other scripture. I just, I, I, before I even get to, um, the first scripture we're going to read is from Luke, Luke chapter 3, verse 7 through 18, but before we get there, so you might find that. I want to just read to you and re-emphasize something. Caleb mentioned this. It's, it's such an amazing scripture from Isaiah. You know, we read over these and so often we miss because we, we read through. And, and God wrote the Bible. God inspired the writing of the scripture very purposefully. And so I want us to read very purposefully Isaiah chapter 9. It's going to go with what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a heart of rejoicing. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Of the increase, not just of his government and peace, but of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is why the scripture is very purposeful in teaching us, encouraging us, exhorting us, and even commanding us to walk by faith and not by sight. Because by sight, by our natural eyes, it doesn't always look like his government and his peace is increasing. But the scripture is very clear. That the birth of Jesus marked a point in our history. Our calendars even reflect that. And the world pushes against that. But the reality is, if you you ever paid attention in history, B.C. counted down to a point and A.D. begins to count up from a point. We count down to the birth of Christ. From the birth of Christ, we count up and we don't stop. Because of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. This is what we talked about last week when we talked about having eyes to see. That God shows up and God works in ways that we don't always expect. He does things in ways that we wouldn't do. He came as a baby, yet he was called the king. We're going to look at scripture today that describes the coming of Jesus, not the second coming of Jesus, but the first coming of Jesus. We don't have to worry about the second coming of Jesus because he came. We know he's coming again. And in the meantime, 
Here's the promise that his government and peace will increase without end. So let's turn in our Bibles over to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we're going to read Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And this is Luke's account about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was six months older than Jesus, yet he spoke of Jesus and said, he was before I was. He wasn't talking about chronology or birth. Even though John was born before Jesus was born, John said, he was before me. Meaning, he is the Lord. He is the eternal one. He is the child, the king, the counselor, the almighty God that Isaiah prophesied of. And it says in verse 7, Luke chapter 3, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise to the the soldiers asked him saying, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and by content, I'm sorry, and be content with your wages. Don't intimidate, don't falsely accuse, and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. Who was John talking about? He was talking about the Messiah. He was talking about the Christ who was prophesied to come. What was his baptism? The Bible tells us it was a baptism of repentance. And when the people, when those Jews came to be baptized and they said, what, what shall we do? And he says, if you've got two coats, give one of them to somebody that doesn't have any. If you've got food, give food to someone. That, was he preaching? Was John preaching the salvation by works? No, he was not. 
John was saying, what he was preaching was repentance. He was saying, you need to change your mind. You need to change who you are. And what's going to be the measure of this change? How are we going to know that you have truly repented? The same way we know whether an apple tree is truly an apple tree, it's going to have fruit on it. But it's not the fruit that determines the root. It's the root that determines the fruit. The root comes before the fruit. So the root sets the fruit. John says, repent, you brood of vipers, you religious leaders who preach and teach these things, but you have no fruit. This is what Jesus says in John, in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, you shall know a tree by its fruit. He was talking about the religious leaders of his day who looked really good on the outside, who sounded really good on the outside with their words, but there was no true fruit in their life. So these people, you notice, who was it that came to John? It was the tax collectors. It was the soldiers. It was those people that were rejected by society. And in many cases, rightly so, because they were corrupt. But a lot of them were rejected, not just because of their corruption, but because they didn't fit the mold because they didn't fit in because they didn't look a certain way sound a certain way they didn't have a certain education they didn't have a certain social class they didn't have what it took to fit in with the in crowd and burden upon burden was laid upon them to the point to where they lost hope but here comes this weird-looking guy dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt eating locust and wild honey who didn't look like all the other religious leaders. And he's out there baptizing, and he's talking to everybody with really plain words. And he's not playing the politically correct game. He's not trying to get in with the in crowd. In fact, when the in crowd comes out to him, he just tells it like it is and he calls them a brood of vipers and he tells them the axe is already laid at the root and that was language that people hadn't heard because most people were afraid to talk to those people in that in that way but John wasn't afraid and why wasn't John afraid John wasn't afraid because he knew who he was but more importantly than John knowing who he was John knew who he represented John knew why he was there And he said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. I baptize you with water under repentance. But there is one coming after me who is mightier than me, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to to tie. And he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. That's the one you need to look to. That's who I speak of. And that's why John wasn't afraid of the people of his day. He wasn't afraid of those in power. Those who ultimately had the power to literally take his head off. And that's exactly what happened to John. John became so popular in his ministry, built such a following that they beheaded him. John and Jesus did things exactly opposite of what we want to do things today. 
Because John and Jesus didn't fear the people. They didn't fear the establishment. They didn't fear anyone or anything except God. And it wasn't an unhealthy fear of God. It was a very healthy fear. It was a fear that gave them boldness and confidence to go out and to proclaim the truth. The only truth that would set men free. You and I have been given that same privilege today. To go out and to proclaim a truth. The only truth that has the power to set men free. Might you be persecuted for it? Yes, you might be. And if you proclaim it bold enough and loud enough and, and broadly enough, the Bible says without a doubt you will be persecuted for it. Because the world we live in does not want the truth. They don't like the truth because the truth challenges them. But Jesus said in John 18 verse 36, he said, for this cause came I into the world to bear witness to the truth. He said that to Pilate as he was awaiting his execution. He said that to Pilate while Pilate was trying to set him free. Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus. He did everything he could except override the popular opinion of the day. It was all said and done. He said, I'm going to I'm going to go with the popular opinion that says crucify him because I don't want to have a riot on my hands. So Pilate did what he seemed to not want to do. But the reality was, it wasn't because Pilate so much trusted in Jesus. It wasn't because of who Jesus was. Pilate was like the rest of the people of his day. He was playing a political game. He was trying to figure out which was going to serve his purpose the best. Now here's the reality. It might not look like it. But what served Pilate the best was to crucify Jesus. Because even though Pilate could have risen to the highest levels of government in the Roman Empire. Apart from the crucifixion of Jesus. Apart from faith in Jesus. Pilate has no hope in life. And so he did what was the plan and purpose of God. And he did unknowingly what was actually the best for him. The Bible doesn't tell us what happens to Pilate after this. But if Pilate was to have any hope. The only place he could ultimately put his hope was in the crucified Lord. The same place you and I have to put our hope today. And this is what Luke is writing about when he writes about John the Baptist who is out there baptizing people, pointing people to one who was to come, challenging the people who were very religious Religion in and of itself won't get you anything. Now let me read another scripture to you. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. So we have Luke's account of John the Baptist before the coming of Jesus. I mean literally 
days or weeks before John utters these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now when we go to Philippians chapter 4, we read the words of the Apostle Paul. And we read the words of the Apostle Paul written now decades after the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he writes to a church in a town called Philippi. The Philippians, not to be confused with the Filipinos. This is an island in the Pacific. This is a town in Asia. And Paul pins these very well-known words. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice! Exclamation point. End of sentence. Don't add anything to that. Don't take away anything from that. Just do what it says, okay? Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything, in everything. Did you hear me? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you know what the Philippians were anxious about? I mean, besides the fact that they were being persecuted and we don't really comprehend what it would have been like to be a Christian in that day. They weren't the most popular group of people around They suffered great hardship in many ways. But Paul is talking about not being anxious, not being fearful, about having peace in a way greater than just our everyday worries, our everyday stress. He's talking about our peace with God. So if we were, and we don't have time to do this, but if we were to read Philippians in its context, we'd see that this church is dealing with the same thing many of Paul's churches were dealing with. That Paul would come in and preach the gospel. He would tell them, you're not justified by the works of the flesh. You're not just justified by the works of the law, but you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul would leave, and then a group of what, what the Bible calls, what Paul called Judaizers would come in. And they say, look, having faith in Jesus is fine, but you also need to keep the law. Hey, you Gentiles, if you want to really be saved, you need to get circumcised. They're like, but we've been baptized. Yeah, but that doesn't really count. You've got to be circumcised because Moses commanded you to be circumcised. You've got to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to keep the law. And they were conflicted. And people were questioning their salvation. Their salvation, their very salvation was being questioned by these law keepers. 
by these lawyers, by these legalists that would come in after Paul would leave. Paul's writing this letter and he said, look, don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Rejoice. We're going to look at why he says that. We're going to look at why John said what he said when he was baptizing. Paul said, rejoice. And he says this. He said, look, lift up your prayer requests. Lift up your supplications to God with thanksgiving in everything. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God. How can we have the peace of God? You cannot have the peace of God until you are at peace with God. You can ask for the peace of God all day long, but if you don't know that you are at peace with God, you're never going to have any peace. If you're questioning your salvation, if you're questioning whether you've got to do this and do that and add this and add that to your faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved, you're never going to have any peace. What's the point of having a good night's sleep? What's the point of having a nice cushy bank account? What's the point of having all your needs met according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus physically, materially? If you don't know that God is no longer at war with you. Or we could say it like this. If you don't know that you are no longer at war with God. Because the Bible says while we were his enemies. While we were hostile combatants against God. Christ died for us. God. We didn't make peace with God. God made peace with us. We were actively, hostily opposing God, and God made peace with us. How did he do that? Ephesians 2 says he did it through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself became our peace. God didn't just send us a peace treaty. He didn't just email us a peace treaty and said, do you agree with this? If so, click OK. No, God sent his son, and his son himself became our peace. How do we know we have peace with God? Because Jesus came. What are we celebrating? Christmas. Uh, Listen, as you can tell, we're not anti-Christmas tree. We're not anti-ornament. We're not anti-decoration. I'm not anti-Santa Claus. I'm not anti-presents. I'm not anti-feasting. We're going to feast next Saturday. I'm going to feast today probably. And every day this week. I just feast more sometimes than other times. Because all of these, all of this grace, this is grace. All this life and all this light and all the joys and all the pleasures that we partake of, this is grace. Life is a celebration. It should be for the believer. Every day should be a celebration for the believer because every day we partake of his grace. The wicked partake of his grace every day, but they don't know it. They don't acknowledge it. But you 
are to know it. You, Christian, are to acknowledge it. You are to understand and know every day that you partake of his grace. And what is the measure of that grace? There is no measure to it. How do you measure the Son of God? How do you measure the life of the Son of God? How do you measure the sacrifice of the Son of God? How do you measure the blood of Jesus? How do you measure the Holy Spirit? How do you measure the living, holy, inspired Word of God? How do you measure your eternal life? How do you measure the power of the resurrection? How do you measure that? You have that in Christ. And you have that because God made peace with you through his son. Do we have a reason to celebrate? You better believe we have a reason to celebrate. And we ought to throw the biggest, baddest party anybody could ever throw. Because we have the greatest reason to celebrate. We have far more reason to celebrate than anyone in the world with any amount of money or any amount of resource could ever have to celebrate. Because God gave to us the greatest gift that could ever be given. He made peace with us. So Paul says what? He says rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let the peace of God, which passes understanding, guard your heart and guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, why did Paul write those words? I'm going to tell you why Paul wrote those words, because Paul knew the word of God. Paul didn't have Luke's gospel. Paul didn't have Matthew's gospel. Paul didn't have John's gospel. Paul didn't have... He was the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, but he, he didn't have all those things. What he did have was the Old Testament scriptures. What he did have was the word of the prophets. So let's go now to Zephaniah. Zephaniah, this is going to be where we're going to spend the, the rest of our time here. Zephaniah is toward the end of your Old Testament. It's one of those little books, one of those small prophets. It's right after the book of Habakkuk, and it's just before the book of Haggai. Zephaniah. Zephaniah prophesied during the time of Josiah. Josiah was the last righteous king of Israel. When Josiah came on the scene, he was a child when he was made king, and it was during his reign that Israel rediscovered the book of the law. It was during his reign that he tore down the high places. He took out all the idols. He restored Israel to to true worship. But unfortunately, after Josiah died and his son Manasseh became king, Boy, it all went downhill really fast from there to the point that just a few years later, Babylon, God fulfills his word and sends the Babylonian empire and King Nebuchadnezzar comes and he conquers Jerusalem. He carries away the captives, true to God's word. So Zephaniah is prophesying to Judah. 
in the years preceding the Babylonian captivity. And Zephaniah is warning God's people. So let's go to Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 14. We're going to read 14 to the end of the chapter. I want you to hear with hearing ears and see with seeing eyes how Zephaniah shows us Christ and the promise of his coming. Father, we just ask that you would right now open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to receive the good seed of your word. Lord, that it would be planted deep in fruitful soil, that it would produce for your glory a righteous harvest a manifestation of Christ in his life. Amen. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. Now remember, this is before disaster has come. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let your hands Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back. Even at that time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. (coughs) Believe it or not, this is a Christmas scripture. Because this scripture absolutely is prophesying the coming of the Messiah. So let's go through, and let's just break this down a little bit. So it says, sing, O daughter of Zion, sing, shout, be glad, and rejoice, daughter of Zion, O Israel, daughter of Jerusalem, sing, shout, be glad, rejoice. This is a command God is giving to his people, addressed affectionately and prophetically To the daughter of Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, to Israel, the people of God. And it's it's addressed, and God is speaking here as her conquering king, as a father, but also, I believe, as a bridegroom to his bride. He has given to us in Christ 
a heart of rejoicing. He has commanded us to sing, to shout, to be glad, to rejoice with all of our heart. This is a command to celebrate what God has done and to rejoice with all of our heart. That word heart in the Hebrew is a word that's very similar to the Greek word we use for soul. In, in, in the Greek New Testament, in your New Testament, when you see the word soul, it's a word that speaks of the, the mind, the will, and the emotions. In the Hebrew, this word heart is very similar. It speaks of that which has to do with the, the mind, the will, and the emotions. And here, the prophet is commanding, God through the prophet is commanding his people to sing, to shout, to be glad, and to rejoice with all your heart. This isn't about a show. This is about fake it until you make it. This isn't about coming to church with your church face on, your happy smile on. This is about something real happening in your heart. It doesn't mean that there's not trial and tribulation. Listen, being able to rejoice in the Lord with all of your heart is not dependent on whether you have trial and tribulation in your life. You might be in the midst of of great trial and tribulation, but the command to rejoice is not conditional. It doesn't say rejoice if you don't have anything bad going on. It doesn't say rejoice if, if, if everything's okay and you feel like rejoicing. It says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It says sing, shout, be glad with all your heart. Give praise Sing, rejoice with all your heart, with your mind, with your will. Yes, with all your emotion. That's what this is saying. Now remember, Zephaniah is prophesying judgment. But he's also prophesying salvation. Here's something you need to understand, church salvation does not come without judgment salvation did not come apart from judgment it never does salvation can only come with judgment sing shout be glad rejoice with all your heart with all your mind with all your will with all your emotions with true heartfelt rejoicing. Look what he says. He says, the Lord has taken away your judgments. That word judgments is, it might say punishment in your translation because it means the same thing. The judgments of God spoke of punishment. So don't think that when God sent the Babylonian army to Jerusalem and conquered the city and took away all the captives and, and so we, we don't stop and think about the picture of what really happened there. And God through the prophet Ezekiel, God through the prophet Jeremiah said this is coming, this is going to happen. God through the prophet Isaiah, God through the prophet Zephaniah, this is coming, this is going to happen. This is my judgment. This is my punishment coming because of your sin and your wickedness. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. The Lord has taken away your judgments. The Lord has taken away your punishments. 
That's what Christ has done for us as his people. He has taken away our judgments and our punishments. He has taken that judgment upon himself for all who trust in him. And he has set the captive free. Zephaniah is prophesying a time when there will be captives. But he also at the end of this speaks of a time when God will cause the captive to return. Now we can think of that in a historical context with real armies and real captives and real people marching into a city and real, uh, you know, Babylonian soldiers carrying real Jewish captives out back to Babylon. That really happened. That's history. But Zephaniah is not just talking about a physical captivity. He's not just talking about the day when Judah will return from Babylon. It speaks of that, but that is really just a picture of a greater freedom from captivity that we experience in Christ. Because Christ came, the Bible says, to set the captive free. And you and I were the captives. We were held captive by sin and death. And we can be free under a government. We can be free in a society. And we can think we are free all day long. And I can do what I want. I can go where I want. I can say what I want. You hear this with kids. Man, I can't wait till I get out of this house and I'm old enough. And I can go where I want and do what I want. And I don't have to answer to anybody. Dream on. (laughs) Because we all... It doesn't matter how young or how old or where we fall on the social ladder. We all will answer to someone. We will all answer to God. And so he has taken away our judgments. He has taken our punishments. He has come to set the captive free. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 In Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace. Why will I not? What happened to my judgment? What happened to my punishment? He took it. Because of Christ, I am no longer the enemy of God. And Christ himself has now become my peace. He took away my judgment he took away my punishment he has cast out your enemy that old serpent the devil has been defeated and cast out just as importantly that old man whose nature was sin and death has been crucified and cast out and put away in Christ this is why Paul writes in his letter to the Romans reckon yourself indeed dead to sin if you have been baptized into Christ you've been baptized into his death and sin no longer has power over you how does that happen that happens by grace through faith in Jesus Christ he has cast out your enemy The enemy has been cast out. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For this reason, the Son of God was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 18. 
He secured our victory triumphing over sin and our enemies in the cross. Paul writes that he made an open shame. He humiliated them openly. He had a victory parade and he paraded before powers and principalities, those defeated at the cross. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13 through 15, he nailed to the cross the handwriting of requirement that was against us. He took away our judgment. He took away our punishment. He has cast out our enemy. In John 12, 31, Jesus said, now, before he went to the cross, I mean literally hours before he went to the cross, I mean, literally, the night that he had the Last Supper with his disciples, when he is getting ready to go to the cross, as he is getting ready to have that last meal, Jesus says, now, now is the judgment of this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Zephaniah writes, he has cast out. Your enemy. Where was your enemy cast out? He was cast out at the cross. Where was your judgment taken away? It was taken at the cross. Where was your punishment taken away? It was taken at the cross. What was the cross? The cross was the culmination of the birth of Jesus, of the coming of Jesus. Why do we have a Christmas tree in that corner? Because we're celebrating the coming of Jesus. Not a coming that will take place one day, but a coming that has already taken place. We're not worried about the next one because we know it's going to happen because that one came. The first one came. And in that first coming, when that baby was born, when that baby was laid in that feed trough, here's what the prophet said. The government shall be upon his shoulders. The shoulders of that baby son we sang about today. The government is upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And Jesus was born and Jesus grew up and Jesus carried the cross to Calvary. And on Calvary, he died. And he took your judgment and he took your punishment. And at the cross, he cast out your enemy. He ascended to the Father. He received the kingdom from the Father. This is the vision of of Daniel chapter 9. When when one as of the Son of Man, the Son of God, comes to the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom. This is the rock that was cut out without hands that comes and crashes into all the kingdoms of the world and grows into a mountain that fills the entire earth. Isaiah, Daniel, Daniel, Zephaniah, they all spoke of the same thing. They all spoke of the coming of Christ. This is why John the Baptist said what he said, what what we just read in Luke chapter 3. This is why John the Baptist said those words. This is why Paul wrote in Philippians. It's why he can command us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. This is why he says, in the midst of your trial and tribulation, you can have Peace that passes understanding. Why? Because our tribulation, this light affliction is just working for us a more eternal weight of glory because we know that tribulation produces patience and patience produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. Why? Because God has poured his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And love never fails. God is love. God never fails. Your emotions may fail. 
People may fail you, but God never fails. Love never fails. God's love for you is not conditional, so don't let your love for others be conditional. He has cast out your enemy. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Christ has taken away your judgments. He's cast out your enemy. So sing and shout and be glad and rejoice with all your heart. That's what Zephaniah is writing. He's writing to a people that are looking ahead to something that is coming. We are speaking now of something that has already come, has already happened. We're living in the midst of what Zephaniah was looking forward to. We're not looking forward to anymore. We're living in the midst of it. We're, what we're living in right now is eternal. We're not waiting for something to start. It's already started. Do you understand that? You're not waiting for something to happen. It's already happened. You're already in Christ. You're already eternally in what God has given you. And there's nothing he can give you that's greater than what he's already given you in Christ. You're just going to see it more clearly and more clearly and more clearly till one day he's going to bust open the sky and he's going to physically appear. But that physical Jesus that you'll see one day is not greater than the Jesus that lives in you right now. The Jesus in you right now is the same Jesus that's going to split the eastern sky open one day. He's in you. This is what Zephaniah is writing about. This is why he says in the very next verse, look at this. He has cast out your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. And he says, you shall see disaster no more. Your translation may say, you shall fear disaster no more. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, says it like this. You will see disaster no more. I like that. Now remember... Zephaniah is prophesying to a people who have yet to see a Babylonian army come and destroy their city, carry them away captive, kill their women, their children, their old men, and take the best of them to their own nation and make them their own. That sounds pretty disastrous. If I said to you that that a nation was going to invade our nation and was going to kill many of us, and carry the best of the best away to their nation and make them their own and train them. Would that sound disastrous to you? To think that your children were going to be carried away by some foreign power and indoctrinated in some foreign idolatrous faith? I mean, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty disastrous to me. I I don't like that. Guess what? Israel didn't like that either. That's why they stoned Jeremiah. That's why they, I mean, they, they put him in prison and they, they stoned the prophets who wrote these things and, and they, they called them false because they said God wouldn't do that. But they wouldn't repent of their sinfulness. They wouldn't repent of their idolatry. And this is what Zephaniah is saying. Look, you shall see disaster no more. How, how could that possibly be? This is why the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. Walking by faith is not denying the reality of your situation. Walking by faith is not floating down a river in in Egypt called denial. 
okay? Walking by faith is acknowledging the reality of your situation and your circumstance, but it's not allowing the reality of your situation and circumstance to rule and control and dictate your life. Because the only one that's ruling and controlling and dictating your life is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So like, do what you want, Babylonians. The Lord is still king. Do what you want, President, Congress. Do what you want, City Council. Do what you want, State of Texas. Do what you want. Fill in the blank. The Lord is still Lord. He is still King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is still sovereign and ruling and reigning over all. You shall see disaster no more. Walk by faith in what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do eternally. Do not walk by sight. Walk by faith, seeing God working all things together for good in Christ. This is the promise of Romans 8.28. You can look at the potential disaster, or you can look at the promise of God. You can look at a situation and say, man, I just don't see how this is going to turn out good for me. Or you can look at the promise of God's word and say, I don't have to see how it's going to turn out good for me because I trust in what the scripture says. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. What you need to be asking is not, God, how are you going to work this out? You need to be asking, God, what's the condition of my heart? Where's my love? Is my love more in the thing and the person or is my love more in you? Who am I really in love with? And the person that you should be most in love with is God. Who are you really trusting in? Well, the person you should be trusting most in is God. You shall see disaster no more. Walk by faith. See God working. Don't see disaster. See the victory that God is working together in and through all things in Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we are to be looking unto Jesus who endured the suffering and the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. He looked to the joy. Who is your joy? If Christ is your joy, then look to Christ. Don't look to disaster. Don't see disaster. See Christ. Look to Christ. This is how the prophet can say this. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. Turn over to Isaiah. Just back a few pages. Isaiah chapter 35. Here's Isaiah. Prophesying the very same things. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Goes on, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. When John the Baptist was in prison, and they came to Jesus, John's disciples, and said, John sent us and said, 
to ask you, are you the one that we're to look for, or is there another? And here's what Jesus did. He quoted Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. Tell John, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf hear, the lame is walking, the tongue of the dumb is singing. In other words, go and tell John, I am the fulfillment of what Isaiah wrote. I am the one who will come, who will strengthen the feeble knees, the weak hands. I am the one that will come not only with vengeance and recompense, but I will come and I will save you. Don't think that when Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6, John was not aware of Isaiah chapter 35 3 and 4. And at the end of 4 it says, and I will save you. John the Baptist is in prison waiting to have his head taken off. And the question, the unspoken question is, are you going to save me, cousin? And Jesus quotes Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. And then he says, and also tell John this, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And here's the answer of Jesus. Yes, John, I'm going to save you, but not not in the way you may think. Herod may get your head, but I've got your soul. Now, here's the question, Christian. Would you rather keep your head? Or would you rather have God keep your soul? In case you're wondering, the correct answer is you want God to keep your soul. Okay? (laughs) I know the prospect of having your head taken off doesn't sound real pleasant, but this is exactly where John was in prison. John knew the prophecies of Isaiah. He knew the prophecies of Zephaniah. He knew Zephaniah said he will cast out your enemy. God wasn't too late for John the Baptist. God cast out the enemy of John the Baptist. It didn't matter that John lost his head. This is why Jesus said, don't fear those who have power to kill your body. Fear him who has power to cast your soul into hell. You lose your head, big deal. God's got your soul. You go through life trying to keep your head, trying to keep your life, trying to gain all this and keep hold of all of this. You're the person Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his very soul? It's not worth it. Because God has already cast out your enemy. You will see disaster no more. In that day, in that day, look what it says, in that day. When the Bible says in that day, you need to ask yourself, what day is that? It's that day, what day? In the day of our salvation, in the day in which it is said, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's Psalm 118, verses 12, 22 through 29. If you read that, it's Psalm 118 that David writes, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then it goes on and it says, this is the stone rejected by the builders, the stumbling block. What was the day that the Lord has made? The day of our salvation. What day was that? That was the day that Christ came. That was the day when Christ lived, when Christ was crucified. And through his death on the cross, he made an open show of his enemies. He humiliated them. He cast them out. But he also saved you. And he made it possible for you to say, I will see disaster no more. Because 
the day of my salvation has come. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem. Who is Jerusalem? Read Revelation chapter 21. And behold, I saw holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven, adorned like a bride. The angel said to John, come and I will show you the wife of the lamb, the bride of the lamb. And he said, I I saw holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven, adorned as a bride. Who is holy Jerusalem? You are holy Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Paul says, you're living stones being built up into a holy habitation. You are the dwelling place of God. You are the place. You are the church, the assembly of called out ones. You are the people that God has chosen his name to dwell forever. Jerusalem was a city on earth that God chose his name to dwell, but Jerusalem on earth was only a type and a shadow of the eternal Jerusalem. Listen, in 70 AD, God tore down that temple. He destroyed that city and he has not allowed it to be rebuilt again because he's already rebuilt the temple. John says this, the third temple is the resurrected body of Jesus. It's right there in the Bible. I don't understand why people don't have eyes to see that. And if Jesus is the resurrected temple, what does that say about you? The same, exactly what Paul and Peter said. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul said that. You think he was just being cute? No, he was being serious. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said that before the temple was torn down. But do you know those guys all knew the temple was going to be torn down? You know how they knew? Because Matthew 24, Jesus said, not one stone will remain standing upon another. This temple will be torn down, but I will rebuild it in three days. Guess what all the religious people did? You're crazy. He's a lunatic. Took over 40 years to build this temple. You're going to rebuild it in three days? The Bible says, but they did not understand that he spoke of his resurrection. He spoke spiritually. Who are you, church? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Who are you, Jerusalem? You're the bride of the Lamb. What does this say? It says, that we are to sing, to shout, to rejoice with all of our heart, that we are not to fear Zion. Don't let your hands be weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. He is Emmanuel. He is God with you. He is the mighty one. He will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love or He will rest you with his love. That's an interesting word there. It means to plow. It also means to be deaf. It speaks of the steadfast love of God. He will rest you. He will quiet you with his love. He's like a plowman who sets his plow and he goes. And he doesn't... You ever try planting in a field where the plowman is all over the place? Not very good. Farmer wants you to plow straight rows. God set his plow in your heart and he is plowing a straight and a steadfast row. And he doesn't veer to the right and he doesn't veer to the, to the left. And he will rest you. He will quiet you in his love that will not fail. What are you listening to? What are the noises? What are the voices in your ear? What are they telling you? Listen 
and let the love of God quiet you. And then he says, rejoice. He will rejoice over you with singing. And we see the steadfast quiet of God's love encompassing us with his rejoicing, with gladness, and with singing. God says he will rejoice over you like a bridegroom over his bride. He will sing over you like a bridegroom over his bride. He is the mighty one who will save you. Don't fear, daughter of Jerusalem. He says, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly. Before the reforms came, they had turned the temple. They turned all the worship of God to the worship of idols. And those who were the true worshipers of God had no place to go and, and assemble and worship. Because the temple was filled with pagan idols and pagan altars. And they couldn't go into the temple and offer true worship to God because the temple had become a reproach. And this is the condition. This speaks to the heart of God's people who have a desire to worship him. But worship of God had become a reproach. And so God promises to gather those who cannot gather in the appointed assembly. These are those who desire to gather as God's people in his appointed assembly, but have been displaced by those who have reproached that appointed assembly and turned it into an assembly of idolaters and false worship. You realize that's happening in many churches today. You realize that has been happening, that has been the case throughout history there has always been those who will worship God in spirit and in truth. There have always been those who worship idolatrous false gods. And they call it true, but it's not. This is not anything new. Don't read the news and look at everything and think this is something new. This is not new. This is, this is the way it's always been. We read about it in the New Testament. We're reading about it in the Old Testament. Same problem we're having today they had in Zephaniah's time. It's why God judged them. And if you don't think God is not judging our nation right now, you better think again. Judgment's not coming. It's here. It's been here. If you don't think the death of 50 million babies, I'm not worried about those babies. I'm I'm concerned about those who put their stamp of approval on the death of those babies. And we as a nation are suffering in more ways than you can imagine. Not just for that sin, but for many, many other. Injustice, wickedness, unjust scales, people in high places who use their positions of power. None of that goes unseen by God. And it will not go unjudged. But for those who belong to Christ, for those who are God's people, God makes this promise, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, over those who see the reproach that's been made out of worship of the true and living God. This stands in contrast to the warning of Hebrews 12, 24 and 25 where 
The writer of Hebrews says, let us consider one another, provoking one another to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, and even more as we see the day approaching. This is the contrast between those who had a desire to assemble but could not versus those who had every opportunity to assemble and would not because they were chasing false things. And then he says, behold, at that time, I will bring you back. When did God bring you back? When did God make a way to bring you back? He made that way in Christ. That baby son was born and that baby son had the government placed on his shoulders and the increase of that government in peace has not stopped since. And that baby son became the way that God would bring not only Israel back, but how he would bring Israel back his people. Paul says, not all are Israel who are Israel, but those who are of the promise. He writes in Galatians, if you are Christ, you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to promise. God made a way to bring you back through Jesus Christ, and that's his promise. How deal with those who afflict you? Let God deal with those who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. This was the promise that the tax collectors and the soldiers and the outcast of Israel latched onto. This is what John was telling them. Listen, you're not accepted because you have a position here and you've got a piece of paper with these letters on it. And you're not excluded because you're a tax collector and a soldier and you're wicked and you're unjust. But if you will repent, if you will come to Christ... God says, I will gather you. I will bring you back. And that's what he has done. Ephesians 2.13 says, you were once far off, but have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's all of us. We were once far off, but we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. The question is, are you trusting in that blood? For those of you that come to you and wonder, what must I do to be saved? You need to tell them you need to trust in Jesus. Not in what you can do, but in what he has already done. This is the gospel. This is the gospel Paul preached. It's the gospel Luke preached. It's the gospel John the Baptist preached. It's the gospel every New Testament writer preached. And where did it come from? It came from God. It came from the scripture. It began in Genesis 1-1 with in the beginning. And it ends in the book of Revelation with an amen. This is the gospel. This is our hope. Let's stand. Father, I ask that you would help us to be a people that would not take for granted your promises. 
Help us to be a people, God, that would see with seeing eyes what you have put in your word for us to see. That we would not gloss over or pass over and only look for those things that seem to justify our own desires and our own wish list, but we would see through spiritual eyes of faith and allow your word to be a mirror that reveals our true condition, that would allow your word to be a hammer that would break our hard hearts. Because the promise is that you would take our cold, hard hearts of stone and give us new, warm hearts of flesh. Give us eyes to see that while we were your hostile enemies, you made peace with us through Jesus Christ. And in that peace, we not only have the assurance that we don't have to be afraid, but we have every reason to rejoice. So I pray, Father, that you would cause your people to sing, to shout, to be glad and to rejoice with all their heart. Even in this Christmas season, in the midst of whatever trial or tribulation or circumstance we may be walking through, that we would see and know those reasons and we would do what you've commanded us to do, that we would, in spite of our realities, sing and shout and rejoice in the face of the greater reality that Christ has come. Christ died Christ was buried, Christ was resurrected, and Christ now sits at the right hand of majesty on high. Christ has given us the victory. Christ is with us to never leave us, to never forsake us. That we, above all people, have reason to rejoice. So God, I pray that you would give to us a heart of rejoicing. And it would be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.